It is good to see you in the Lord's house today, and we do have some guests with us. Thank you so much for joining with us. And so if you are tuning in via the Internet, we welcome you, and with our congregation, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3, the prophecy of Daniel, because Daniel was a prophet, Daniel chapter 3. <clears throat> We started uh, a message last Sunday morning from the third chapter entitled uh, Grape and Images, but it also can be entitled If He Doesn't. And this morning I want to read, uh, we're not going to read the passage, the entire passage that we read last Sunday, but I do want to begin with verse 8 and I want to read down through verse 18. Now we're we're going to be in and about uh, the third chapter here of Daniel and also uh, other passages of Scripture as well. Therefore, at that time, remember, Nebuchadnezzar had erected an image of gold which represented himself in verse 1. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I've set up? Now, if you are ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and in sympathy with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. May God bless the reading of his holy word, and let's go to the throne of grace in prayer. Father, we have been given the keys to Zion City, and if we know you as Lord and Savior, we've been born again by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God has moved in our heart and our soul to convict us of our sin, convince us of our need for a Savior then we will walk with the king in that celestial city. 
We thank you for Sarah, for her family. We do pray that you would abide and be with both of them. We pray, Lord Jesus, as we close out this message that we began this morning, that we would see that the focus is not so much on these three Hebrew young men, but on the fourth man that is in the fire. And so remind us again that the scripture is about Jesus. And we are recipients of the scripture as we are recipients of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So last Sunday we looked at uh, the first seven verses and we focused on the king's decree. We went into some history about uh, the Babylonian culture and what took place uh, at uh, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2 that was interpreted by Daniel. And then, of course, Daniel said uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and in this dream he was uh, the head of gold of this magnificent idol. And so he took that literally. And about 12 to 15 years later, he uh, commanded that uh, an image be constructed on uh, the plain of Dura. So we spent some time focusing on that last Sunday morning. <clears throat> so how does this passage relate to the 21st century? Many, many times we'll read the Old Testament and we'll say, eh, okay, that's just history. There's no, there's no application for today. Well, the plain truth is, yes, there's always application from Scripture, and this passage is no different. Now, there are certain observations that we gleaned from the first part of chapter 3 last week as this passage takes place in the 6th century B.C., somewhere around 586, 550, something of that nature. We're not sure what the time frame is, but in that 6th century prior to the birth of Christ, and the observations then are as real as they are today. They do apply to us. Now, I'm just a pastor. I'm not a historian. I'm not a politician. Thank God. But I can observe the world in the 21st century. As I observe the world around us, for Sarah, for our young adults, for others, it pierces my heart for this generation. So let's think just a moment back on some fairly recent history within the past 40 years or so. There's a war in our Western culture today. And Sarah, you have been and are part of that war. Every single person here. You have been and are part of that war. We're not isolationists, and even if we were, we could, could not isolate ourselves or segregate ourselves from the onslaught of the culture that we live in today. Now, you can agree or you can dis disagree with me, but it really doesn't matter. The fact remains, images have been erected in the 21st century, and you and I will either bow or else. Sarah, before you were born in 1979, that's, that's been a long time ago. In fact, I finished at Liberty in 1979. 
the moral majority was founded. It was founded by Dr. Jerry Falwell. But, and this is a very important but, the moral majority, the phrase, by the way, was coined by Richard Nixon and then by a man by the name of Paul Weirich, who was the founder of the Heritage Foundation, which still exists today. Moral majority does not. But the Heritage Foundation still exists today. In 1980, a year after the founding of the Moral Majority, the People for the American Way was established. And it was antithetical to what the Moral Majority proposed. Now, I want you to understand something. Morality does not save. Morality is a reflection of the Spirit of God within us, but it does not save you. Jesus saves. So you may be, there are very moral people on earth that are unsaved. So understand that. And being immoral doesn't save you. And being immoral does not keep you from being saved. For we are all strangers and aliens in a foreign land. Since the early 80s, hundreds on both sides have been established to vie for our hearts and minds. We see that here. And we see it today. Now, Alistair Begg said, and I quote, he says, here in our own nation, sadly, Many of those European exports, and a lot of what we see today comes out of Europe, and why we want to be like Europe, I do not know. Traveled, traveled to Europe a number of times, beautiful continent, great people, but we are Americans, not Europeans. Sadly, many of those European exports, like a virus, have found their way not only into the bloodstream of our nation, but also into the bloodstream of the church. We should be familiar with viruses. And at the same time, an increasingly prevailing notion that somehow or other, he writes, reason and religion are antithetical to one another. So that if you are a sensible, intelligent person, you will be poo-fooing uh, poo the notion of any kind of professed Christian faith. And if you do profess Christian faith, it will not be surprising if people treat you as if somehow or another you have not really managed to come up to par. Continuing his quote, we are being forced to answer a straightforward and simple question. What does it look like to live as a Christian in a society that does not like what Christians believe? This was true 40 years ago. It was true 3,000 years ago. And it's true today. His quote, that's the end quote, this is eerily close to Daniel chapter 3. And here's, the, here's one of the primary takeaways from Daniel 3 and from this introduction. 
if not for the intervention of Jesus Christ into sinners' hearts and lives, people don't change. They may be moral. They may be immoral. They may be amoral, but they do not change. Now, here's the thing. As believers, we should not be afraid. America, nor the Western world, is Israel. In fact, from what we know from many, many prophecies in the Bible, especially those of the Olivet Discourse and into the book of Revelation, the world is Babylon. We're not Israel. Nowhere can we find that in the scripture. And God dealt with Israel severely for their idolatry, and we broached that last week. We are in the world like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like Daniel, and no doubt others, in Babylon. But they weren't afraid. We're fearful of everything. These men, from the record that we have in Daniel's book, were men of faith. And we'll examine that more as we move through the passage this morning. They were confronted by the rising kingdoms of the world, just like you and I. The rising cultures, the atheistic, atheistic anti-God culture, of this world. Yet we are believers, we are pilgrims passing through this world of Babylon. We're not to, we're citizens of this world only as long as we live, and then we pass from this life into the life that is to come. Turn to John chapter 18. This is Jesus before Pilate. I've read this a number of times. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the Gospel of John. And every once in a while we need to be reminded of this because we cling dearly to what we have. We become idolatrous about what we have. Jesus. Verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Verse 36 of chapter 18, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Now, if we're a Christian, which means to be Christ-like, you ought to circle that because my kingdom, your kingdom, not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. You should memorize that and never forget it. Our kingdom is not of this world. When the Lord returns, and he will, when he comes again, he will set up a kingdom on this earth. But until then, our kingdom is not of this world. So when we look about 
where we are as Christians. We think that issues of citizenship and political affiliation, as significant as they are, and they are significant, don't misunderstand me, but these, along with the science du jour, the science of the day, and by the way, pure science, there are very few settled sciences. Science, by its very nature, is by and large in flux. I just finished reading a book by Dr. Stephen Conan, who was, uh, uh, who is, rather, was climat climatologist on uh, when, when Obama was president, and he wrote a book entitled Unsettled. And it's about the unsettled nature of climate change, the science du jour, and we have experienced that this, these past 18 months. But we put our faith in that. You see, the issue is God's kingdom. And his kingdom is being established in another world. His plan and our unyielding conviction to that plan. So last week we saw Nebuchadnezzar's decree and we saw that no doubt the tens of thousands, we're not sure how many folk were here, but it was a lot. They're kowtowing to his authority. So let's look at this passage a little further. We talked about graven images last Sunday. Let's look at the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, O king, if God doesn't answer our prayer, there are going to come times in your life, if you've been a believer for any length of time, you've already experienced it. God does not answer every prayer. And it's good that he doesn't. It's for our good that he doesn't. So even if he doesn't, O king, we are of the conviction that we're not going to bow. Is that your mindset and conviction this morning? We read verses 8 this morning through Verse 12, you will always have, and this, these are pagan priests. So last Sunday we looked at the king's decree in the first seven verses, and these verses, 8 through 12, you got pagan priest envy. They're jealous. It's very, very evident here. There will always be whistleblowers and finger pointers because man is incurably legalistic. You can't get it out of him. There will always be whistleblowers and finger pointers. There will always be those that point you out and say, well, that person says they're a Christian, but look what they're doing. And more often than not, that's said by other folks that profess to be Christians. So let's pause and let's think about this for a moment. There are three institutions that God placed on this earth. They are divinely, they were divinely designed, and they are embedded in his act of creation. 
They are a result of the fall when Adam and Eve sinned and his wonderful intervention for our redemption. Creation, the fall, redemption. These three, the family, the state, and the church, and all of us, even those that are unsaved, even those that don't darken the doors of a church, are impacted by, especially in the Western world, the influence of the church. The family was established by creation. The church, obviously, was established because of man's sin. And then we have the redemption which gives to us, excuse me, the state uh, was established because of man's sin, and then the church was established for redemption. Now, all three of these are interdependent. We need, them, we need all three of them. We see some of it here in Daniel chapter 3. But they are not identical. We don't promote one over the other. They strengthen each one of us. People think that if you're part of the family and if you're part of the state and if you're part of the church, you need to stay in your lane, especially the church. Stay in your lane. Don't say that these type of lifestyles are aberrant or sinful or so forth. Don't preach about sin. Don't talk about the blood. Stay in your lane. Well, we have here in Daniel chapter 3 a man that moved out of his lane. That man was Nebuchadnezzar. When he moved to influence and change the imago Dei, the image of God in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so when the culture influences us, they are moving to change that image. And that is real today as it was many, many years ago. So you have the pagan priest. And notice they're all fired up. Verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Now there's the rub. This happened at the end of chapter 2. There's the rub. Apparently they had a considerable amount of influence with Nebuchadnezzar, and we learn more about that in verses 13 following, because Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take these pagan priests' word for it. He goes directly to them and asks them for his own audience. So he doesn't really trust these pagan priests either. So they've been appointed. You've promoted them, and look, O king, they don't care about you. They don't care about your gods. And they don't worship the gold image which you've commanded to be worshipped. Fast forward till today. To today. Do we see some similarities between 21st century America and 6th century Babylon? I think we do. Part of my observations. 
So Sarah and others, be aware of this. Your testimony will always be doubted by governments, especially if they counter edicts from the sophisticated crowds. So I would ask this question. Did it bother Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Did it bother John the Baptist when he stood before Philip the Tetrarch and told him, you've got another man's wife and this ought not be? Did it bother Jesus Christ when he told uh, Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world, and others, all the way through the Old and New Testament? Did it bother Daniel in chapter 6 when he was pitched into the lion's den because he continued to pray? No. You will always have finger points. You will always have incurably legalistic people that say, well, if you don't do this, so we must obey God, as Peter said, rather than men. Ah, oh, they don't pay any attention to you. They don't serve your gods. They don't worship the gold image. What are you going to do about this? O king, live forever. These guys are gumming up the whole works. You got thousands of people that are bowing down and they're standing up. What is wrong with you, king? You will always find, as I said, whistleblowers and people haters will always point you out. Go with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. This is not unique to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not unique to Daniel in chapter 6. Not unique to John the Baptist. We find this at the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1 of Luke 23. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, no less than the precious Son of God. Saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ the King. Now, did Jesus ever, did he ever forbid to pay taxes to Caesar? Did he? What did he say? He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, the state. So this is a lie. If they lied about Jesus, they will lie about you and I. Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. Yes, I'm a king. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce. And we'll, if we go back to D Daniel chapter 3, we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar loses it completely. They were the more fierce. He stirs up the people. He's teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Of course, when he heard 
Jesus was a Galilean, he sent him to Herod, and that's a whole different study, story. But what I want you to see here is that Jesus himself was falsely accused. Do you think, do you and I think then that we always deserve to be rightly accused? That is part, there's a word for this, and that's persecution. That's part and parcel of what the Lord meant when he said, all believers will suffer persecution. So, back to Daniel 3. So those are the finger pointers. Look at verses 13 through 15. We've read them. I'm not going to uh, reread them again. Notice verse 13. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and fury, said, bring these guys to me. And then he says, okay, listen, we've got this wonderful, magnificent symphony, and they're going to play, and when this happens, whatever it, it was, hail to the chief Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, whatever. Are you going to bow your knee? And if you do, that's good. I applaud you for that. But if you don't, I want you to know something. These guys that have tattletale on you, I got to say face, you're going in a fiery furnace. And he said, oh, by the way, you don't serve my gods. Well, which of your God is your God going to deliver you? Now, remember back in chapter 2 when he said at the end of chapter 2, he's verse 47, the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the revealer of secrets, since you could, be, you could reveal this secret. And as I mentioned last week, these are just words. There's no change in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. There's no change evident because that's what we see here in chapter 3. It's not until chapter 4 when God crushes Nebuchadnezzar and causes him for seven years to act like an animal outside of the city of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar finally is humbled before God. He's no more in tune with God than most people are today. So he's mad. He's angry. And the conviction that these three Hebrew men have contributes to rage and fury. And our conviction will contribute to rage and fury. We will be called and are called haters. We will be called and are called racist and all manner of things. It contributes to rage and fury. And when the person in charge loses control, and that's what happens here. By the way, God's fury is not like this. God's anger is never without control. But ours is. You could say... He flew into a rage, he flew off the handle, whatever you want to say, but the leader is trying to influence you, trying to persuade you, and he loses it completely. And so he says, we've got to add a little gentle persuasion. You don't bow, you're going into the furnace. Now here's the thing. There's an image of gold that has been constructed. We're not sure how long that would take, but if you think back at all the construction that would have been involved, the carving of the image would no doubt have been done in wood. 
So this thing is, is massive. It's 90 feet long. It's 9 feet wide. It's erected on the plain of Dura. So a, a fair estimation is it would have taken several months, if not many, many months to do this. Well, gold is heavy. And they're not going to overlay it with gold and then haul it to the plain of Dura. So in conjunction with the construction of the graven image, there was construction of a furnace. And the furnace would have been used for smelting the gold and other metals that were used for the construction of the image. And obviously there were other things around. Nebuchadnezzar was a king. I'm sure he had a home there. Whatever. So there's some time that takes place here in chapter 3. And the furnace is already there. So they're burning it. We don't know what's going on, but they, they, they have fired it up and they are burning the furnace. Who is the God that's going to deliver you out of my hands? When you think you are God, and Nebuchadnezzar does, you always set yourself up for failure. So Nebuchadnezzar is a civil magistrate. He had already steered out of his lane. He had forfeited his role as a minister of God. And now he is forcing these men under the guise of punishment to bow down. Now civil magistrates are to restrain evil. Nebuchadnezzar is promoting it. Several magistrates are to promote righteousness. Nebuchadnezzar is ridiculing it. So here, this man is completely out of the avenue that God had placed him in. So the king is angry. Let's look at the final thing here, the Hebrews' conviction. Read it a couple of times, but... Notice what it says in verse 16, the latter part. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, they're not being flippant. They're being truthful. All the way back in chapter 1, Daniel and these three and perhaps others. In fact, it talks about others in Daniel 1. They had taken an oath not to eat from the king's table. And they were allowed to do so. So Nebuchadnezzar, over many, many years now, we, probably at least 20 years, if not longer since chapter 1, over many, many years he had observed what these young men and Daniel had done. We don't have any need to answer you in this regard. You already know what we're going to do. And that's what they say. God, our God, is able to deliver us. And he's going to deliver us from your hand, O king. So, remember, notice what it says there. Look at verse 17. If that is the case, our God whom we serve. These guys aren't just showing up. They didn't show up, just show up in chapter 1. They didn't just show up here in the latter part of chapter 2 or chapter 3. These guys were serious about serving God. 
They prayed. Daniel, obviously, his, his prayer life is seen all the way through, uh, in fact, the entire book. They're serious about service. This reminds you and I, we should be serious about service. And that includes the house of God. You see, for the Christian, faith is our lifestyle. And Jesus defines his children. I don't define who I am. If you are a believer, you don't define who you are. Well, I'm a pastor or a preacher, but that is what I do. It's not who I am. I am a child of God. Jesus defines me. If you are a believer, Jesus defines you. These men understood that. And I hope this morning when you leave, I hope you understand it. We do not get as believers a choice to define what we do, where we go, and who we are. Jesus defines us because of that. We are in Christ. That's what Paul wrote hundreds of times. I'm not in Ernie. I'm in Christ. And you are too if you are a believer. Our faith is not simply something we claim when it suits us. When disease hits us. Or some tragedy. Or some loss of income or whatever it may be. When something comes along, it's not then something that we jump out of bed in the morning and say, Oh God, help me now, I have, I have this disease. Oh, oh now God, help me, I have lost my job. That's not what defines us. That's not what defined these men. Now, how do you define faith? Well, verse 18 defines it for us. But if not, if the disease takes my life, if God does not answer my prayer, I'm still going to serve. If I lose my job and I can't find one for so many weeks or days or whatever. That's not going to define me. Christ is going to define me. My faith will get me through this. And if it doesn't, I preached last week on about idolatry, a great deal of it about idolatry, and I read this, this week looking at over some notes. There was a commentator that said the greatest idolatry in America today is maintaining our lifestyle, maintaining our standard of living. I'm guilty of that. Oh, God, don't let something happen to me that's going to change my standard of living. Hmm. Superficial faith will fail us. It's failed many. It's failed many here at Flat Creek over the years. That's one of my observations. Many. When all we hope for is God's healing or God's protection or God's, God's financial benefit, we have a superficial faith. 
but Christ defines us as human beings. And remember this as we bring this to a close this morning. This story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not the heroes. They're just ordinary guys that live by faith. We're not going to look at everything in detail in the remainder of the chapter, but in verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar is, is even more angry than he was back in verse 13. And so they heat up the furnace seven times hotter. Now, I don't know what that means. It's unimportant. The fact remains is that generally the furnace, these men would be pitched in not to the side of the furnace, but through the top of the furnace, which is where the majority of the heat is. So they were bound, the scripture says, and they were pitched into the furnace. They survived that, and then the scripture says that the men that took them up to throw them in, that the fire was so hot, they were killed. And they fell down in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. They weren't thrown in, they fell down. In verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose in haste and spoke saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men into, bound to the midst of the fire? They said, yes, true, O king. I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God, is like the Son of the gods. They were just ordinary men with feet of clay. We didn't cover this last Sunday, but one of the visions in chapter 2 of the image, and turn back with me there briefly because I want, to see, want you to see this. Look, if you would, at verse 34. Now, Daniel is describing this to Nebuchadnezzar. So he said, you are that image of fine gold. In verse 32, look at verse 34, 33. Its legs were of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. That's what God is doing here. That's what God does in chapter 4. That's what he does in chapter 5. That's what he does in chapter 6. We all have feet of clay. So, like Daniel in chapter 6, these men say, if, even if God doesn't, we're going to resolve to pray, we're going to resolve to worship, and the Lord obviously sustains them during this time. I notice this. <laughs> God doesn't change Nebuchadnezzar's heart to keep them out of the furnace. That's what we want. They go into the fire. And God sustains them. Chapter 6, Daniel is an elderly man. Now, we think he's in his 80s. He may have been as old as 90. The very same 
finger pointers. And this is a different king. This isn't Nebuchadnezzar. This is Darius. And so, oh, king, live forever. If a man doesn't bow, he doesn't pay a decree to you, we're going to pitch him into a den of lions. If they pray. How long do you think Daniel had been praying for 80 or 90 years? How many prayers do you think he, he had uttered for 80 or 90 years? Don't you think when he heard that, Daniel could have said, you know, I think I can forego praying for 30 days. I don't have to pray. I've prayed up for 80 or 90 years. Surely the Lord will let me bypass for the next 30 days praying. Is that what he did? We think that way, don't we? No, Daniel goes back and prays. And we know the story. And the Lord delivers him from the mouth of the lion. You see, we say, I'm, I'm sure the Lord won't mind if I miss a couple of Sundays here, miss a couple of Sundays there. Peter would write this. He said, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You're not the same as others. Oh, yeah, human beings that you are, but you're different then. He says, you have been converted so that you might show forth praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship. Even if he doesn't, in this day and age, we'll still follow him the Lord Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer, who went home to be with the Lord last year, said, it is not for us to stop believing because we lack understanding or to postpone believing till we get understanding, but to believe in order that we may understand it. As Augustine said, unless you believe, you will not understand. Faith first, Sight afterwards is God's order, not vice versa. And the proof of the sincerity of our faith is our willingness to have it so. So do you really want to be countercultural? Then don't abandon your faith because Jesus has not abandoned us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the word. We do pray for Sarah. Pray for all these young people, young adults. We pray for those that have young children. We pray for those that are seniors or median age, whatever it may be. We pray for us this morning. And we pray that we, Lord Jesus, might sustain the faith that you have imparted to us that even when we are brought before a situation where there is no particular situation that we do not understand, calls us, Lord, to not abandon you, 
we do pray that you would have your sweet will, your divine way, the remainder of this service this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.